passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Well, I'd like to welcome you. It's great to have you. Um, if you're a newbie, my name is Kurt. I'm one of the pastors. We are, have just begun a study in the Gospel of Mark. So you've come at the right time if you're sort of new. Last week, I did a message called Meet Mark, and it was simply an introductory message. We just get a little overview of the gospel of Mark and how it's broken into two halves, and then we also spent some time meeting the person of Mark, the author of the book, someone called John Mark, and it was really fascinating to see his background and how God had literally prepared him by having him spend extended time with the Apostle Peter and with Barnabas and with Paul. So he was in a perfect position to write this book, what is the first gospel that came into existence. Now this morning, we're going to actually dive into the text. We're only going to be looking at the first eight verses. So what I want you to do is take out your copy of God's Word right now. Turn to Mark chapter 1. And get ready. While you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of information on Mark to help you understand it. I told you last week that uh, this was a book that was written originally to the audience of the Romans. And in Rome, they were very concerned about rhetoric and how things were presented and the style with which things were done. And we looked at a little of the style of the book. But in Rome, what was very popular at this time were something called the ancient biographies. And they were biographies written about the great rulers and the great leaders of their society. Sort of, it's a way of them passing on their history. And it was very popular because, quite honestly, each one of us likes a story. Each one of us likes to hear a story about people's lives, the ups and the downs and what they went through. Biographies are still a very popular book style. So uh, we know, for instance, there was a biography of Caesar Augustus, and that was a very popular one for people to read. Mark, when he writes this book, he's intentionally writing it in this ancient style of biography. And he's not telling uh, people about uh, the story of a, a great king that ever lived, but he's telling people the story of the greatest king who ever lived. The king who is over not just a period of history, but the king who is over all of history. Now, stand with me, if you could, and let's turn to Mark chapter 1. I'm going to read the first eight verses. We stand out of reverence for God's word as we read it. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. 
and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And that ends the reading of the word of the Lord, and you may be seated. We're going to handle this text by sort of dividing things in half a little bit. We're going to spend the majority of our study just with explanation of the text. Then at the end, we'll come back and I'll give you some application of the text. Now, the text itself, you'll notice, really divides into two pieces. The first verse is one piece. It's the introduction. And verses 2 through 8 are the second piece. It's the story of John the Baptist and him preparing the way. So let's begin by looking at the first verse, which is really just the introduction of the book. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, In your Bible, you'll see the very top of this book says the gospel of Mark. The... the oldest copies of this manuscript obviously did not say the gospel according to Mark across the top of them. That was added later to give it a sort of a position in our Bible. But what was originally there is this first verse. This first verse was the introduction of the book. It was the explanation of the book. And I want to unpack this because it's very rich in its meaning. I want to begin by looking at this word gospel. For us, the word gospel is a very churchy word. I mean, the only place you'll hear gospel is in church. You have the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But if you were to go back to the ancient world, gospel was not a churchy word at all. Maybe you've been around the church a while and you know that the word gospel means good news. And so you think it could mean just any kind of good news. Mom calls and says, hey, we're having pizza tonight. It's the gospel. Good news. Uh, actually, that's too loose of the term. See, gospel literally means the good news of the announcement of the arrival of a king who is your savior. Not just any news. The announcement of the arrival of a king who will be your savior. Someone who is going to come and is going to change the way the world functions and make life good once again. Now, that's the general term of the meaning gospel. But the Jews, they understood the word gospel slightly differently because they had the Old Testament. So they would, in their minds, reach back into the Old Testament. So what did the word gospel mean to the Jews? Many of you know that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in what? Greek. Good. Now, uh, what happened in that day is many people were just sort of getting rusty in their Hebrew. You know, they speak Greek. They talk Greek. They live in Greek. So they don't spend much time in their Hebrew. So what happened was there was a translation of the Hebrew Old Testament that was translated into the common Greek language of the day. It was called the Septuagint. 
Septuagint. Now, the Greek word gospel, euangelion is that word, um, interestingly, was used in the Septuagint. And it was used in some very key and strategic places. I'm going to read for you two of those places. Let me show you the first one. If you're taking notes, I'm going to ask you to circle some key words. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 9 through 10. It says, Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, and herald of good news. Circle good news. That's literally the word gospel in the Septuagint. Lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Circle that again. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, his recompense be for him. So Isaiah the prophet says here in chapter 40, you know, get up to the highest point, the highest point of a mountain. So that way when you make this announcement, everybody can hear you. So it's a loud announcement. And this is what he wants him to announce. Herald the good news. Now, remember the word gospel is what's used. Usually that means the arrival of a king, an earthly king, who would set his people free. But yet Isaiah says the good news is not that an earthly king is arriving, but it's actually God who is arriving. Did you notice that? Circle this, what the announcement is. Behold your God. Circle that. Behold the Lord God comes with might. Circle that. Isaiah has said, there's a time when there's going to be a good news of announcement of a king that is going to arrive. And this king that is usually a savior is not going to be an earthly king to save you, but God himself is going to arrive to save you. So when the Jews hear the term gospel, in their mind, they not only understand that in its culture of Rome, like an earthly king, but in their mind they reach all the way back to what they've read in Isaiah 40 and other passages that one day another king is coming. A king who is God himself who will be our savior. And save us once and for all from the greatest enemy, Satan, sin, and death. Now, we find this also in Isaiah 52. How beautiful are the mountains are on the mountains, excuse me, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Circle that again. It's the word gospel in the Septuagint. Who publishes peace, who brings good news. Circle that again of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. So once again, we're talking about the announcement of a king's arrival, a king who is going to bring salvation. But who is this king? Your God reigns. This is the arrival of the king who is God himself to save his people. 
This is what the Jews would connect. Interestingly, uh, this is right next to Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53. Isaiah 52 and 53 are the suffering servant sections. And it describes a lot of the sufferings that Jesus would go through on the cross. So this is obviously leading right into Jesus being the one who is the king who will ultimately reign. So this is what the Jews think of in the back of their mind when they hear the word gospel. Not just a temporary earthly king, but one day there'll be God who will be coming, who will be king. Now let's go back to the Romans. What did the, what did the word gospel mean to the Romans? We've already sort of covered that. The idea of a king who is savior, but I wanted to provide some more support for that for you. The best support I found for it in my quick research was a birthday inscription that was written actually for Caesar Augustus in 9 BC. So this is right about the time of Jesus' birth. Look what the Romans said about Caesar and how they used the term gospel. The providence which has ordered the whole of our life showing concern and zeal, has ordained the most perfect consummation for human life by giving it to Augustus, by filling him with virtue for doing the work of a benefactor among men, and by sending in him, as it were, a savior for us, and those who come after us to make war to cease, to create order everywhere. The birthday of the God Augustus is the beginning of the world as the gospel has come to men through him. So how would you like that written for your birthday? A little overdone maybe. But you get the idea. They're extolling him who has made the wars to cease and has brought peace to the earth. So the Romans... Think about the gospel as the idea of the good news of a good king. The Jews think about the, good, the gospel as the good news of a good king. But ultimately, there is coming the greatest king of all, who is God himself. Interestingly, it says this is the beginning of the gospel. Now, that may not sound important, but it actually is. Because in the other ancient biographies of the world, they never said just the beginning. Biographies that you read cover someone's whole life, don't they? You have a beginning and you have an ending. But Mark is sort of cluing us in with this. Jesus, this is only the beginning of his story. He is still reigning. He is still ruling, and obviously his kingdom never ends. It only expands. So, he hasn't said that yet, but he's cluing that into us by just using that unique opening word, the beginning. Now, Mark continues, and he introduces us specifically to who this king is that the gospel message he's giving is about. The new king is Jesus, who is the Christ. Oftentimes we read, the king is Jesus Christ. And I know that we often think, well, Jesus must be his first name. Christ must be his last name. That's not the way it works. Jesus is his name. Christ is his title. We'll cover that title issue in a moment, but let me just mention the name of Jesus. Jesus is actually out of the Hebrew, Joshua and it means God saves, which if you think about it, 
I can't think of a better name for Jesus than Jesus. Because isn't that what Jesus came to do? He is God who came to save us. Which is interesting when you read Matthew, when the angel tells Joseph to name his son Jesus, it makes very logical sense. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Because Jesus means God saves his people. Now remember, he's Jesus who is the Christ. Christ is actually a title. It is the same as you would say in the Hebrew. The Hebrew would be Messiah. Maybe you've heard that. Uh, maybe you've also seen the term anointed one. Originally, the anointed one referred to the kings of Israel. They were the ones who were chosen by God and given the right to rule over his people. And ultimately, you know, the subsequent kings that fell in that line were chosen by God to rule. In fact, you can see this in 2 Samuel twenty-two fifty-one. Great salvation he brings to his king, and he shows steadfast love to his anointed, which in Hebrew is Messiah, which means also the Christ. To David and his offspring, there you go, forever. So Jesus is the Christ. He is the one chosen by God to be the rightful ruler over his people, ultimately in the bloodline of David. And then he says this in the title, Who is the Son of God? This new king has God as his father. Now in an ancient biography, when you study these, whether it's like Caesar Augustus or whoever you want to go to, they always begin with an introduction, and then what they do is they give the lineage of that king. So you know who his father was and who his father was because you wanted to know that king's bloodline. By the way, this is why both Matthew and Luke, did you notice, begin with a lineage of Jesus? Matthew gives Jesus' earthly lineage from Joseph, his father's side. Luke gives Jesus' earthly lineage from Mary, his mother's side. Now, Mark skips both of his earthly lineages and just goes right to his heavenly lineage and says this, Jesus, that we're going to talk about, has God as his father. He is equal with God and he is eternal like God because he is God. He's the son of God. Now, by the way, the balance of this book will be unpacking this that Jesus literally is the Son of God. Remember the first eight chapters? He is going to demonstrate this by his works and his words. The last eight chapters, he's going to demonstrate this by his death and by his resurrection. That he is what the title says. Jesus is the Christ who is the Son of God. So that is the title of this book. Now, in the ancient world, 
when someone who was a king, a highly exalted and important king, whether it was Caesar Augustus, whoever you want, they would not just show up in town unannounced. That never happened. You always had a forerunner who announced the king's coming and cleared the way for the king's arrival. Very similar to what our president does. Our president sends the secret service ahead, doesn't he? Doesn't just show up. There's somebody there to repair the way. Now, what happens for the verses 2 through 8 is Mark is going to describe the forerunner who would prepare the way for the arrival of this great king, which is standard protocol for all great kings in the ancient world. So let's dive into this. God promised he would announce the king's arrival. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, Mark wants us to understand that the idea of this king's arrival, and even the forerunner of this king, who would prepare the way for this great king, this is not something that is a new idea in God's mind. This has always been God's idea. In fact, it was talked about in prophecy back in the times of the Old Testament. And he shows us these prophecies. Now, I said prophecies plural because there's an interesting thing that goes here. He says, and this is written in Isaiah the prophet, but you need to know He's actually not just quoting Isaiah. He's also quoting the prophet Malachi. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, plus he's quoting Isaiah chapter 40. Now, this used to really annoy me because I'd be studying this. It says Isaiah, but then he quotes Malachi and Isaiah. Like, the Bible must have something wrong. I don't understand it. I was really confused for a while. And then I continued to do more studying on it in preparation for sharing with you this morning. And I learned actually in the early church, it was a common practice to actually butt together like multiple verses or multiple pieces of prophecy that had to do with exactly the same thing. And what they would do is they would always reference it by giving the major prophet even though they may not mention the minor prophet. Part of that is a cultural thing. Uh, in our day and age, we like everything really exact, right? Like, what's the chapter? What's the verse? Is it part A of the verse or part B of the verse? We want to know all those things. They are a little more loose the way they did it, so they'd reference it by the major prophet, not necessarily the minor. Um, now, let's look at these two quotes put together and just put them right just pull them right out of Malachi and Isaiah. Malachi 3.1, Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. There it is. Or Isaiah 40, verse 3, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, a herald that would prepare the way for a coming king. He would remove literally the debris in the road so it would be a smooth ride. He would tell people the king is coming so they'd clean up the town, so they'd be ready to cheer when he arrived. John is not removing, and by the way, he's going to introduce this to John in a moment. John is not removing physical debris 
out of a literal road. What John's job is, is to remove the spiritual debris of hardness of heart and sin in people's lives. What he's going to do is he is going to produce a lot of conviction of sin and repentance for sin. So, John the Baptist, quite honestly, is the original hell, fire, and brimstone preacher. That's what you want to think of him as. And he's a pretty good one. Because people have to go 20 to 30 miles into the desert to even hear him. And then when they get there, what does he do? He yells at them. So obviously he's a pretty good preacher. Now, what I find interesting, and this is a little bit of a trivia, but I think it's pretty important for us. Even though this text is just referencing some segments from Malachi and Isaiah to talk about John the Baptist preparing the way, if you expand these segments out just slightly, Malachi and Isaiah tell us that the person that John the Baptist is preparing God's people for is a very special person. He is not a common person. Look at this. Malachi 3.1 Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. That's John the Baptist. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. If you're taking notes, I want you to circle the Lord. And I want you to circle his temple. John is preparing the way for somebody who is the Lord who is going to come into his temple. John is preparing the way for a king who is God. That's what it says in Malachi. See how John says Jesus is the Son of God? You go a little bit uh, into Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Circle prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Circle for our God. When it says prepare the way of the Lord, in Hebrew, the word Lord is the name Yahweh. Yahweh is the personal name by which God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. John the Baptist's job is to prepare the way for the arrival of God himself. Isn't this interesting? That Jesus literally is the Son of God? Now it continues, and John himself is introduced. John the Baptist prepared the prepared people for Jesus by helping them see their sin and repent of their sin. Verses 4 and 5. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, let me tell you a little bit about John. If you want to know what John means, John literally means, in the Greek it means, uh, the Lord is gracious, which is an interesting name because 
you realize John's job is to convict people of sin. And if you realize when God's convicting you of sin, it's actually God being gracious to you. It may feel really bad, but it's a good thing because until you see your sin, you can't repent of your sin. Now, we call him John the Baptist. And once again, we think Baptist is his last name, and this is the beginning of the Baptists. Actually, it's not. The Greek literally says it is John the Baptizer. It's describing what John always did. He called people to the carpet about their sin. He urged them to confess their sin, repent of their sin, and then to baptize them. Again and again, he baptized people. Now, the question becomes, what is going on in this baptism? Just so you know, this is not the Christian baptism we do today. When we baptize people, we baptize people into the name of Jesus Christ. We baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is not what John is doing. In fact, you go to Acts chapter 19, if you want to do some trivia. Acts chapter 19, you find some disciples of John who connect with Paul much later after Jesus Christ is risen, and they end up being rebaptized, but they're baptized in the name of Christ. This is only baptism for the forgiveness of sin. And what is going on? Here's the deal. In the ancient world, uh, Jews were not baptized. Ceremonial washings? Yes, baptisms, no. In the ancient world, Gentiles were baptized. If you were a Gentile and you really had started to hang around the synagogue and you wanted to make uh, Yahweh the God that the people of the Jews worshipped part of your life and you wanted to become part of the Jewish people, you were baptized into the Jewish nation. Now, the Jews would never baptize. That would be too humbling. That would be too unnecessary. Why should I be baptized? Because I'm part of God's people. I'm in the in crowd. Baptism was for the dirty, rotten, filth, and Gentiles. And what John is doing, he's helping people identify their sin. He's helping people see their sin. He's bringing them to repent of their sin. And then he says, be baptized for your sin. You need to publicly say, I am no better than a dirty, rotten, filthy, stinking Gentile. And I need to call out to God for help. I'm spiritually bankrupt. Now this is really, really important. And let's stop for a moment and give some application. John the Baptist is coming to repair the way for Jesus Christ, to repair people to receive the message of Christ. They need to come to the point where they see their sin, they own their sin, they confess their sin, and they say, I am no better than anybody else. I'm willing to be baptized because I need forgiveness of my sin." It's only when we get to that point where we see our sin and repent of our sin that we can see the message of Jesus and we can receive Jesus Christ. Now, look what it says in 2 Timothy 2.25. 
correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, which leading to the knowledge of the truth. Repentance of sin is necessary to trust in Jesus Christ to forgive your sin. Until you see your sin and the greatness of it, you'll not be able to see Jesus Christ and the greatness of your Savior. Now, what continues from there? We know that John is calling people to confession. We know John is calling people to repentance. And they're not trusting in Jesus Christ at this point, but they're feeling convicted and repentant of their sin. Now, all of a sudden, John, or Mark throws in some interesting stuff about John and his clothing. John the Baptist looked and acted like an Old Testament prophet. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. The other Gospels give us other interesting pieces of trivia about John's life like his sort of miraculous conception by his mother when she was super old. Or the fact his father could not speak until he was born. Or that he had the Holy Spirit, the scriptures say. He had the Holy Spirit even while yet he was in his mother's womb. Mark skips all that. And all he focuses on is his, uh, his dress and his diet. Now Mark... Why would you give us that bit of information? Let's look at his dress. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. Now, when we see this, we think, oh, he must have just had like a camel hide on him with some hair on the outside. Is that what it says? Not a camel hide. He's clothed with camel hair. Now, in that day, they would take animals, like they could take animals like a camel, and they could take and they would weave that hair together to make a rugged woven garment. Now, it was a rugged garment. It was a warm garment, a camel hair garment, but I'll have to admit it was also a really itchy garment. Because it was made in hair. Not much of a fashion statement, but it functioned. It says also he had a leather belt. And I wonder why he had a leather belt, but I know why I wear my belt, which is to hold everything together. And that's probably why he wore his belt, to hold everything together. But here is where it gets interesting. This fashion that uh, John was following actually has some historical roots in the Old Testament itself. You may not have realized that. This fashion of wearing uh, clothing made of hair and a leather belt was started by somebody called Elijah. They answered him. He wore a garment of hair and it, with a belt of leather around his waist. And he said, oh, that's Elijah, the, the Tishbite. John the Baptist is looking and dressing like the Old Testament Elijah. Elijah, one of his jobs was to call God's people back from Baal worship, back to Yahweh. 
And this is the same thing that John the Baptist is doing. In fact, if you look at Luke chapter 1, verse 17, which talks about the John and his birth, this is what was prophesied about him. He will go before him, speaking of Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. In other words, when you look to John the Baptist, you should see he is acting, he is living, and even looking like the Old Testament Elijah. In fact, Jesus said this, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah that was to, who is to come. Now, here's a little interesting piece of trivia for those of you who have been around the church for a while and know a lot of this stuff. Maybe you have read this verse before, Matthew 7, 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. One of the things that false prophets would do is they would try to dress and look like Elijah. They would wear clothing woven together of animal hair. So they could look like Elijah of the past. And in this case, what is their clothing made of? Wool. So beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Don't let, you, don't let somebody uh, fool you with their garment. Now the other thing we learned is about uh, John's diet. He ate locusts, which really, I'm not into those things. I don't know if you guys have eaten them. Uh, Technically, according to the Old Testament law, they are the, an insect that you're allowed to eat. And if you want to look this up, uh, Leviticus 11 verse 22 says that locusts are clean animals. I did a little extra research to discover how you eat locusts. Apparently, you do peel off the wings and the legs, which makes me feel better already. And then what you would do is you'd boil them, you would roast them, or you would bake them. And Apparently, they're actually a pretty good source of protein and minerals. So if you're stuck in the woods and you happen to see some locusts, you know, just be like John the Baptist and eat them. Now, the other thing it says is he ate wild honey. And I think I know why he had the honey. And that was so he could actually eat the locusts. We have learned in our house if you cannot get your kids to eat their vegetables, you just put enough sugar on it and they will eat anything. So I think that's why he's having honey with his locusts. Now, let's come to the last two verses. John the Baptist pointed people to Jesus and he preached saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. We often think that John the Baptist was merely and solely preaching repentance and confession of sin. That was half his message. The other half of his message is saying that somebody is coming after me whose strap of their sandal I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie. Now, in the ancient world, taking off a sandal was not a lovely thing to do. Who here has ever stepped in a steaming pile of dog dirt? 
Does anybody like to try and scrape that out of your shoe? Nobody wants that job. Well, imagine you weren't wearing a pair of sneakers. You were wearing a pair of sandals, and you stepped in a big steaming pile. It gets grosser by the minute. The ancient world, when they had roads and highways that people traveled, realized they didn't have cars that used petrol. They had animals. And you know what the exhaust looked like all over the road. And you stepped in it. And then it rained. And you couldn't help but step in it. So when you arrived at the house that you were going, your feet were encaked in feces. It was disgusting. Now, in that day, only the absolute lowest slave in the house had the job of peeling off your sandals and scraping the junk off your feet before you came inside. And here's John the Baptist saying, the guy who's coming after me, I'm not even worthy to undo his sandal strap. Put this in context. How popular is John at this point? Multitudes from Jerusalem and Judea are streaming into the desert, walking 20, 30 miles into the desert to hear him preach. And the whole time he's yelling at them, repent of your sin. And yet people are coming by droves. Now most people in that situation would sort of let it uh, go to their head. Everybody wants to come hear me. <laughs> Yeah, I can even preach like in the woods and they still come, I'm that good. But John doesn't go there, does he? Guys, I'm nothing. The guy who is coming after me that I'm preparing for, preparing you for, he's something. Don't look at me. Look to him when he comes. That's what you really need and what you really want. And here's what he does. He explains why Jesus is so much better. He says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In other words, John says, you know, all I can really do is just get you wet. That doesn't change you. But this guy, when he comes that I'm preparing you for, he's the one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And when he comes, he will change you from the inside out. He will make you into a completely new person. Now, look what it says in Titus 3, verses 5 and 6, about what the Holy Spirit does when he comes into our lives. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. What makes Jesus such a great king is he is the only king who can change your life. When you trust in Jesus to forgive your sins, not only are you legally justified before God, but in that moment, God's Holy Spirit comes into your life and He makes you into a new creation, a new person from the inside out. Now, I don't know 
what you have used as your sin management strategy in your life. Maybe you've tried all kinds of self-help stuff. Maybe you've constantly repented of your sin and you found you haven't changed. I have to tell you, you cannot change your life. Only Jesus can change your life. My friends, that is why he is such a great king. Now, I want to give you three quick application points out of this. These will just sort of drip right out of the text that we looked at this morning. Number one, before anyone can embrace Jesus as their Savior, they need to see the truth of their sin. That is why John the Baptist came preaching repentance and confession of sin. Because until you repent and confess and see your sin, you cannot see the good news of Jesus, your Savior. What this means practically for us, when we are trying to tell our friends and neighbors about Jesus, do not begin with the good news of Jesus Christ. Because they don't need good news. Begin with the bad news of our sin. Maybe you go to, I think it's Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes. Jesus says, if you looked at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. Jesus says that if you have hated your brother, you've murdered them in your heart. Have you lusted? Have you hated? Then God sees you as an adulterer and a murderer. Because he cares about our thoughts, not just our actions. You see, it's when you see your sin, then you can turn to the greatness of your Savior. Second thing, Jesus is the only one who can change your life. I love the fact that John says, all I can do is get people wet. But Jesus is the one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And there is literally a supernatural transaction that takes place that makes us into new creations when we trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. So, when you're talking to your friends and neighbors, realize that what they need is not self-help. What they need is Jesus to change their heart. And he changes our heart as well. Last application point is this. Life, by the way, is about pointing people to Jesus. That's what life is about. Not pointing people to us. John the Baptist got this right. Picture him at the peak of popularity. 20 to 30 miles into the desert, the Jordan River. People coming out by the droves to hear his preaching. He never pointed his finger at himself, did he? His finger only pointed to Jesus. Because all I can do is get you wet. But Jesus is the one that can change your life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for, as the title of this book says, that Jesus, you are literally the very Son of God come to earth to be our great Savior and King. We thank you that the prophecies about John the Baptist didn't just prophesy that John the Baptist was coming, but they prophesied that John the Baptist was preparing the way for God himself to come. We thank you for the preaching of John the Baptist, which wasn't just repent of sin, but repent of sin and look 
to the one who is coming after me because he is the only one who can change your life. I thank you, Heavenly Father, that we look at this text from the other side of history. Jesus, thank you that you have come. Thank you for making us into new creations when we trust in you. And I pray that we would point people to you this week as we share about your life with others. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.